also a fairly new series called Consilience, in which we try to bring together people from different research backgrounds with different perspectives to talk about a theme of common interest. Um, and so this is a fairly new series, a little bit experimental. We always have sort of very, what I think, interesting panels with interesting people with very different perspectives. And um, today we have three speakers talking on the topic of animal minds. Um, and the first our first speaker will be Professor Elkan Fatsch, who is um, a professor at the English department at the University of Strathclyde. And she has um, research interests in animal studies and Renaissance studies. So she's going to bring to this topic a historical perspective, perspective as well as a contemporary perspective. Um, she has worked on this topic together with people from diverse interests within academia as well as outside of academia. Um, in 2007, I think she had she published a book on um, pets. Is that right? Um, and our relationship to pets, but she's also worked on other relationships that we have to animals, including meat eating, agriculture, and other topics. Um, and so she will start off our panel debate, and then she'll be <coughs> followed by Gregory Reddick, who is a um, senior lecturer in history and philosophy of science at the University of Leeds. Um, so he's um, got research interests, obviously, in the philosophy of science, including Darwinism, evolutionary theory, but also animal cognition. Um, and so he will bring the perspective of the philosophy of science to this panel. And then we will have um, Professor Nicola Clayton, who is a professor at the University of Cambridge, and she works in comparative um, ethology. So she's interested in cognition and intelligence in young children, animals, um, including eggs um, and uh, birds. And she's some, done some really fascinating comparative work comparing cognition in different species and also between humans and animals. And so what we'll do is um, each of these people will talk for about 10 minutes. Then we'll have a little bit of a discussion among the panel. And then we'll open up the discussion for contributions and questions from you. And um, so without much further ado, I will give the word to Erin. Okay. Um, thank you for inviting me to this. It's uh, intimidating to make generalisation about animal minds when there's a real expert in the room, and I'm very aware of that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the distant past, the 16th, 16th and 17th century. And I want to start the ball rolling by thinking about how we have thought about the minds of animals in the past. Uh, and I'm going to briefly take us back to 1615 and to a debate that took place at Cambridge University. Uh, in the presence of that great huntsman, King James VI and I. My hope is that in reminding us that ideas about animal minds have a history, we might be more able to think in new ways about the, how they exist in the present. So, the subject of the debate that James attended was, we're told in a contemporary report, tempered and fitted to suit him. And it was, and this is a quote, whether dogs could make syllogisms. That is, whether dogs could engage in complex reasoning. This was not, it should be noted, a wholly serious endeavour. Such debates were more about the display of the human participants' persuasive and rhetorical skills than about the subject matter that was being persuaded itself. On the occasion of this debate, one speaker proposed the affirmative, that dogs could syllogise, and invoked an ancient Stoic argument. He spoke of a hound who hath... The major proposition in his mind, namely the hair is gone either this way or that way, smells out the miner with his nose, namely she is not gone that way, 
and follows the conclusion, ergo, this way, with mouth open. <laughs> that is, having sniffed that the hair has, gone, has not gone one way, the dog deduces without the use of his nose, and thus by implication with something that might be like reason, that it has followed the second path. This comes from Chrysippus. The answerer in the 1615 debate refuted this by arguing that, quote, dogs, um, sorry, I've lost my place, that dogs had, had much in their mouths, little in their minds, unless it had relation to their mouths, <laughs> that their lips were larger than their understandings. That is, that animals were driven by instinct and body, hunger and mouth, and not reason and mind. The source for this argument was, again, classical, this time, this time Aristotle, in De Anima, who stated that plants, animals and humans feed, animals and humans have the capacity <coughs> to move, but only man and possibly another order like man or superior to him possess the power of thinking, that is, mind. But the 1615 debate in Cambridge does not end with this assertion. There is another intervention, and it is, I think, the crucial one. This is how Thomas Ball, the contemporary, reports it. The king in his conceit was all this while upon Newmarket Heath and liked the sport, and therefore stands up and tells the moderator plainly he was not satisfied in all that had been answered, but did believe a hound had more in him than was imagined. I had myself, said he, a dog that, straggling far from all his fellows, had light upon a very fresh scent, but considering he was all alone and had none to second and assist him in it, observes the place and goes away to his fellows and by such yelling arguments as they best understand, prevailed with a party of them to go along with him and, bringing them to the place, pursued it into an open view. Now the king desired for to know how this could be contrived and carried on without <coughs> an exercise of understanding or what the moderator could have done in that case better and desired him that either he would think better of his dogs or not so highly of himself. Now, I'm arguing that James's intervention is notable because what he does is shift the focus of the debate from what we might term philosophical speculation into the realm of empirical observation. I had myself a dog. James has refused to allow the discussion to be positioned as merely theoretical, but instead recognises that looking at real animals rather than simply repeating age-old truisms or using animals as an excuse for human rhetorical <coughs> display, might bring to the fore not what they are expected to do, but what they actually do. And James's dog <coughs> is doing something that, to the king's mind, looks like contemplation, decision, <coughs> persuasion. He calls it understanding. When the what the king sees is an animal's mind at work, not just human minds showing off. This distinction between ideas and actions is a crucial one, and is one that we rightly or wrongly take for granted now when we consider the question of animals' minds. It is what they do, not what we think they do, or what we predict they will do, that is important. But is this shift to looking at real animals that I figured in James's intervention in the 1615 debate enough? Or is something else needed to allow us to think, what's the word, afresh, with new insights about animals' minds? There is another place that we might and frequently do go to think about animal minds that I want to consider here, and that is the imagination. And I want to return again to the past to do this. In the early modern period, the period when modern experimental science emerged, the writer of fiction was conceptualised as a maker, 
as a builder of new worlds. So in 1579, Sir Philip Sidney wrote that the poet, quote, goeth hand in hand with nature, but crucially was not enclosed within the narrow warrant of nature's gifts, but freely ranging only within the zodiac of his own wit. In these terms, the poet is not limited to the realities of the world, out the world out there, but can go beyond it in his or her mind. This can lead to fantastic imaginative leaps. Sidney argues that the poet can construct, for example, a chimera, a creature with the head of a lion, the body of a goat, and the tail of a serpent. This isn't a 17th century image, and I couldn't <coughs> find a 17th century image of a, a chimera, but I did find a 17th century picture of a manticore. Uh, this is from Edward Topsell's History of Four-Footed Beasts from 1607. I think that's a baboon. Seriously, I think in about 150 years, that evolves to become recognised as a thing called a baboon. But that's another story. <laughs> it's not just monstrous creatures that the imagination can construct. The term to the imaginative mode of writing is frequently a productive one in relation to conceptualising an animal's mind because really understanding what an animal is thinking is potentially an impossible task for a human. I'm saying potentially because other people might have other views of that. Um, and this is where John Key's work from 1570, De Cannibus Britannicus, translated in 1576 as Of English Dogs, comes in. In this text, Keyes is attempting to catalogue particular breeds of dog and their particular skills as they are found in Elizabethan England. And to do this, he describes the dogs and their actions, both things that can be witnessed by an attentive observer, observer but enters the realm of poetry, as Sidney has defined it, in order to describe a reality that might otherwise escape his grasp. In doing this, he becomes, I think, an interesting case study for us this evening. So, John Keyes writes of the English setter. When he hath found, a bird, found the bird, he keepeth sure fa and fast silence. He stayeth his steps and will proceed no further, and with a close, covert, watching eye, layeth his belly to the ground and so creepeth forward like a worm. So I'm going to spend the next three minutes uh, talking, uh, thinking about that final simile. Now, it's not clear whether creepeth forward like a worm in Key's, is Key's attempt to portray the dog's actions or is his attempt to present the dog's sense of its own actions. <coughs> and the difference is an important one. If this is Key's attempt to capture the animal's behaviour in human terms, I think it's really interesting that he uses a literary technique. In 1603, Sir Francis Bacon, the father of modern science, wrote that literary language failed because it was, in his words, tie not tied to the laws of matter. So it can describe a chimera when there is no such thing as a chimera in the world. If by implication then language tied to the laws of matter is what science must use, then it seems that Keyes is doing something very interesting. Because he is like a good Baconian avant la lettre, being empirical. That is, he is experiencing the word, and the word empiricism comes from emperia, which is the Greek for experience, and is describing what he sees. But he's also utilising language that is not tied to the laws of matter. It is as if he is aware that matter-tied language can represent what he sees, but cannot fully represent what it is that motivates the actions that he witnesses. In these terms, we might read Keyes as evidence that, in the period when modern science first emerges, the Conian <coughs> ideas allow for a description of actions, but not of thoughts. They make sense of bodies, but not minds. Now, what happens if we read 
Key's phrase, like a worm then, as his attempt to describe the dog's own knowing performance in hunting. <coughs> if this is the case, then what's being pointed at through his words is a glimpse of the animal's possession of a sense of self that can be disguised as another self. Such a sense might offer evidence of an interiority usually reserved for humans. Here the dog is imagined contemplating that success in creeping up on a bird lies not in being a dog, but in performing as a worm. The dog's awareness of what might be termed its own dogness and its awareness of the bird's perception of that dogness is evidence of much more capacity than, envisaged, than is envisaged in a dog being led by its mouth. What appears on the surface to be realistic and thus limited in its describing of a hunting dog, of a dog trained by humans to perform a particular task for them, becomes something else. It becomes an act of wondering what another mind might be and how it might do something that is called thinking. Now, Francis Bacon argued that poetry created unlawful matches in its bringing together of things not linked by nature. Goats and lions and serpents, the chimera, might be a monstrous embodiment of such thinking. By joining dog and worm, animal and self-awareness, John Keyes then commits the emerging scientific sin of being poetic. But in doing so, he offers a depiction of the animal's behaviour that might otherwise be lost to human conception. This dog, whose role is, he says, with a mark of his paws to betray the place of the bird's last abode to the hunter, to the hunter is envisaged as having more than simply an indexical role. To say the very least, Keyes offers an explanation for animal behaviour that is interesting to use a term applied in a similar context by contemporary philosopher and psychologist Vincien Despray. Despray writes of ethologist studies, and she's looking at sheep, but I think her point has wider resonance. Um, we could say that sheep have been victims of questions of little relevance compared to their abilities to organise themselves socially. Of interest, she goes on, is he or she who makes someone or something else capable of becoming interesting. This, I suggest, is what Keyes is doing with the setter. So what King James's intervention and Keyes' description might point us towards tonight, perhaps, are a number of related questions. Have we, in our segregating out of knowledge and in our cultural appraisals of what makes real knowledge of the real world, have we restricted our engagement with animal minds? Does the discourse we use shape what we see? What might be at stake in maintaining the way we think now? And what would happen if we started to change it and to make animals perhaps more interesting than they already are? Thank you. which are the years when he publishes his great works on men and animals. 
Rather, it's 1892, or that's the case I'm going to make today, which is a little bit more than, than 10 years after he died. Because it's in 1892 that for the first time there emerged, in a publicly prominent way, two remarkably contrasting scientific ways in to the animal minds. And, and these are ways in which, in my view at least, have continued in one way or another to shape the discussion. So what I want to do is to give you some feeling for each of these programs from the inside, each of these ways in to the animal mind. And then near the end suggest that one of them in particular uh, has posed a kind of a permanent challenge to any science of the animal mind, including possibly things that Nikki will be showing us in a little while. This is the begetter of the first of the two methods, ways in I want to talk about. He was for many years the light of my life, uh, intellectually. His name was Richard Lynch Garner. He was, as you see, a bull-necked son of the South, born in southwestern Virginia. He fought for the Confederates uh, in the American Civil War. He broke Broncos out in the West, fought Apaches, sold real estate, taught kids. Uh, and then in the 1880s, he had what turned out to be his one great idea. By that time, the debate, the public debate, on Darwin's ideas had grown especially vivid around one issue in particular, language. Was language the one citadel, the, the one thing that really separated humans from the beasts, and the one thing that Darwinians would never give a seriously good scientific explanation for? Garner's mission was to provide that, uh, that scientific explanation. And in the 1880s, he thought he'd seen how to do it. Uh, it was a new weapon, a weapon of phonetic precision, as he called it, the Edison Cylinder Phonograph. The Edison phonograph was pretty much the first recording technology ever. It was invented in the 1870s. The first models were not very good. But by the late 1880s, Edison had put out a new one. And Garner began taking it around zoological gardens in the eastern United States, conducting the experiment you can see uh, drawn here. This was at New York Central Park, 1890. That's the phonograph. He's actually got a brush in his hand to brush away the wax shavings that were uh, accumulating around the cylinder as it, as it turned. So the monkeys spoke into the cylinder as it turned. Uh, Garner then recorded their utterances. He then played the recordings back to the animals. And the idea was that now, with this amazing machine, humans had liberated themselves from the need to rely on their own powers of mouth and hearing, all the imperfections that we have. Now the machine could repeat back to the animals exactly the sounds that they had made. And under controlled circumstances, one could play these sounds back to see what they meant to the monkeys. And on the basis of these experiments, Garner claimed that he had discovered what he called the simian tongue, the language of the monkeys, which he said was different only in degree from the human languages. This work made him quite unfeasibly famous. Uh, in 1892, he published a book called The Speech of Monkeys. He then came to this country en route to what's now Gabon, uh, was at the time the French Congo. And you can see his plan here, uh, drawn out by the artist. The idea was to take his photograph out to where the apes were, and then to sit in an iron cage in the jungle and to take down the missing links of language. The summer of 1892, Garner came to Britain hawking this program, steamed out of Liverpool in September. 
That same year, my other main character gave the first public statement of his rather different program. His name is Conway Lloyd Morgan. Uh, he's what my, my wife would call a fake Welshman. Uh, he was a London boy, uh, but you'd never guess that from the name. And Morgan in 1892, at the Edinburgh British Association meeting, where Garner also went, announced a new rule of method for the experimental study of animal minds, or more precisely for the interpretation of observations made of animal behavior under experimental conditions. In 1894, he published a textbook, the first <coughs> of its kind, An Introduction to Comparative Psychology. And in that textbook, he referred to his canon of method. And what he roughly said is that thou shalt not attribute more to the animal mind than you absolutely need in order to explain animal behavior. And this was couched in terms of lower and higher psychical faculties. So if you could explain what you observe by postulating only lower faculties, you should do so. It was a version of Occam's razor, only a version of it. A little complicated to make sense of it in those terms. What it meant in practice, however, and this takes us back to some of the things that, that Erica said, was that in practice, Morgan wanted you to be very suspicious indeed when you were given clever animal stories. So to take one of his examples, if uh, you are told about a dog who is awfully clever, this dog, because this dog figured out how to open up a gate, the dog understood the principle, you're told, of the gate, you should be suspicious. You should have your guard up intellectually. Because Ozon thinks, Morgan, if you had been watching that dog, what you would have observed is that by trial and error, by simply the making of automatic movements, some of which brought pleasure, others of which didn't, the animal would gradually acquire the ability to open the gate without, however, understanding the principle of the gate. In practice, this is what Morgan's canon did. It enforced lowly trial and error learning explanations over rational explanations. Uh, we had some early modern texts. Let me give you a little Victorian text. The evening would be incomplete uh, without some. Near the end of the book, he gets on to how, how one should interpret bird courtship. So the male birds display. They've got their plumage, their love antics, as Morgan calls it, I think following Darwin. Here's what he says. He says, I do not think anyone who knows his facts can deny that some animals have a sense of beauty and derive pleasure from objects which to them and to us are delightful to the eye. And he has in mind things like the bower bird nest. So that's what he's not denying. But he goes on. I'm going to give you his prose in a moment. But he proceeds to make a distinction. A distinction between, on the one hand and on the lower side, an animal liking one sense experience to another, psychically lower, and that's to be distinguished from an animal holding a standard or ideal in its mind, and judging that one thing comes closer to the standard or ideal than another thing. This is a new kind of distinction, and quite a corrosive one. <coughs> Here's how it works out in Morgan's text. Many biologists believe that birds select their mates from among numerous suitors because of their song or because of their bright plumage. Suppose a bird has two males before it, both of which are endeavoring to display, by display of plumage and by love antics, to win her choice. She selects the brighter and more graceful performer. 
does not this, it may be asked, imply that she has a standard of excellence and selects that mate which she perceives as the nearer of the two to such standard. But admitting for the purpose in hand the correctness of the biological interpretation, that there is an exercise of choice on the part of the henbird, it does not necessarily follow that she compares the two competing males to an ideal standard, or even the one with the other. Here's the deadly bit, the skeptical bit, the skeptical reading. It is quite sufficient to suppose that A evokes a stronger emotion and a stronger appetence, not a word we use much anymore, but sort of the opposite of aversion, than B, and that she is therefore drawn to A rather than to B. There is no necessary framing of an ideal of excellence. Notice how the bird's mind is becoming impoverished. You don't need to suppose anything as extravagant as an ideal in her head. And if the facts supposing them to be biologically well-founded can be explained on the hypothesis of sense experience, the greater appetence prevailing, we are bound by our canon of interpretation not to assume the higher faculty of judgment against the standard. Now, of my, my two ways into the, to the mind of animals scientifically, Garner's phonograph and Morgan's canon, I think one way you can interpret the history of animal mind science from the 1890s through to our day is as a kind of an oscillation between the two poles they represent. Uh, one extravagantly generous, some might have thought, about the animal mind, the other extravagantly the other direction, ungenerous, skeptical. But of the two, it's to my mind the Morgan's, uh, Morgan's canon, which represents the more challenging to any science of animal mind at any time. Because the kind of skepticism that Morgan articulates here proves very difficult indeed to combat if the person you're arguing against really wants to press the case. Often, when Morgan's canon doesn't win the day, it's simply because it's been excluded from the conversation. Either because the people who live by it have died out, uh, or simply because they're not around. Uh, and yet, it, it always remains something, it always remains a possibility that someone in the discussion will raise the skeptical question. And to that extent, it, as I say, remains permanently challenging. Thank you. So I just have to switch the presentations briefly. Um, I think there was already a lot of interesting um, aspects here and a lot of um, points of convergence as well as it were. Um, and I think we'll come, we'll certainly come back to a lot of these aspects in the discussion and. Um, see how they might apply to sort of the more practical side of things when uh, we look at the actual study. Sorry, I think this is asleep. It's coming back. Oh yeah, there we are. Okay, so let's have a look at someone from the more practical side and then see how it all comes together. It's but an evolutionary accident, perhaps, or at least this is a scary thought to entertain, that we ended up as a planet of the apes, albeit slow, almost hairless ones, with an oversized brain. We might, one could argue, have ended up as a planet of the crows, with humans as mere intellectual curiosities of our avian masters, those big-brained, 
and rather formidable looking crows. So that's my outrageous claim, and then I will come back to a more serious um, rendition of it in a bit. But if you just consider a few facts for a moment, our feathered friends are arguably more successful than mammals. There are 9,000 species of them, and there are just over 4,000 species of us mammals. And birds inhabit every continent and also almost every kind of environment on land, in water, and of course, in the air. As for the crows, or what I call corvids, which means members of the crow family that includes the ravens, the jays, the magpies, and the jackdaws, there are about 120 different species distributed over every non-polar continent from Africa to the Americas. Now, the idea that some birds might be as intelligent as the non-human apes triggers a mixed reaction. Dismissed by many as merely bird-brained, others are frightened by their alien intelligence, that beady eye and that quizzical look, not to mention those imposing beaks, as images of Hitchcock's thrill other birds cast fleetingly over the mind's eye. A select few, such as myself, really genuinely admire them. You might not think that the rook pictured here is beautiful, but I certainly do. We think of them as clever. We think of them as definitely devious tricksters. I have to warn any new technician who comes into the lab to help feed the bird not to make the mistake of taking her rings off when she washes her hands and leaving them within beak reach, because if she does, they may well be stolen and hidden or cached, only to be retrieved when the bird decides to do so, not when she needs to leave for home that evening. There are a number of examples. Highly gregarious rooks use cigarette ends as insect repellent to smoke out the bugs from under their wings, and they won the BBC television prize for Britain's cleverest animal for their antics at the M4 memory service station where they pull up bin liner under their, their feet and then they get the food that's at the bottom of the bin and they do this in tandem so you have two birds on opposite ends of the bin doing this together and then one, one of them's got a big bag full it chucks it over the side of the bin the other one then flies down to make sure nobody else tries to steal it and they toss all the food over the side before later consuming it. Whether they've learnt it by trial and error is, of course, an open question because these birds live in the wild and by definition we have no idea what kinds of experiences they had. Nonetheless, there are a number of feats that seem quite clever about it. For one thing, the two birds have to coordinate their actions, otherwise the bin liner just ends up deeper down the opposite end of the bill out of beak reach. And for another, they have to actually delay. It's not, it's not a straightforward action that you would expect in a simple account of trial and error learning because the, there's a big delay between the time the animal is tossing the food over the side and when it actually comes down to get it. Now, in fact, over the past 25 years or so, so I'm giving a much more contemporary account than our other two um, speakers, Erica and Greg, 
There's been a major revolution, I would argue, in our understanding of the mental lives of animals. Initially, it was exclusively seen as more or less, anyway, the province of the primates. It really was monkeys and apes. Whereas nowadays, there's a lot more study of many different kinds of animals. Now, ooh, why is it going to sleep? I think it's not going to do that's the problem. There we go, let's try that. It's not surprising, of course, that much of the focus was on the primates. After all, they're the most closely related genetically to us, and they look more like us. Recently, however, there's been increasing empirical evidence that crows are just as smart as apes. And that's what, in my short presentation, I'd like to tell you a little bit about. Now, I'm going to focus predominantly on two kinds of crow. This is the rook pictured here, which spontaneously makes and uses tools. And this is the scrub jay over here, um, which is exceptionally good um, at tasks that require some kind of ability to take action now for the relatively long-term future and take into account the actions of other individuals. So I want to begin by taking you through one of the standard examples that was initially thought to make humans unique, the ability to use and make tools. And Jane Goodall and others discovered that chimpanzees were also capable of such feats. But what I'm going to show you is an example that crows do it too. The scientists followed a small group of chimpanzees through the forest to a pile of stones. They were astonished to see the chimps industriously cracking open oil palm nuts to get to the soft kernel inside. Japanese scientists have been watching this group ever since to find out how and why chimps started using stones in this way. By numbering each stone, the scientists could record which ones were used most. They found that chimps are very fussy about which stones they choose because nut cracking is a highly skilled job. To be successful, a chimp needs two very different tools. First, it selects a support stone with a flat top, what we would call an anvil. It also picks a hammer stone with a good weight. The tricky bit is balancing the nut long enough to get the hammer to it. So that's our chimp example. Here's a crow example. Some of these crows become so attached to one particular tool that they carry it about with them. This log is clearly a good source of grubs and a whole group of crows have come here to feed. Their technique is neither to stab nor to harpoon but something more subtle, to irritate. This grub has got big jaws, 
and if attacked, it can give a powerful bite. And that's what the crows rely on. A younger bird joins an experienced adult to see how things are done. Now the pupil has a chance. hasn't got all the details exactly right. It will be about a year before it masters the skill. Okay. So we can study some of these abilities in the laboratory as well to try to pose various kinds of problem-solving tasks that require tools. And we've been doing so on the rooks. And the rooks are particularly interesting because there are no reports of rooks habitually using tools in the wild. I think because they've got very long beaks, and for most of the kinds of foods that they normally feed on, they don't need a tool. Any more than much as I'm perfectly adept with a fork and a knife, I wouldn't use a fork and a knife if I was eating a packet of crisps or even an apple. But in the lab, when presented with problems that require tools, the birds rapidly um, use them and even make them. And I just wanted to give you a couple of examples of that. So this is a version of the Aesop's fable in which the thirsty mother crow wanted to drink some water and she used stones to raise the water level. In our case, the birds are not thirsty. We don't need to be that cruel to them. We floated a worm on top of the water. But the water level is too low for the bird to reach the worm. Now, these are the Belgian truffles of uh, crow's world, and they really like them. And here we are giving our bird some stones, and this is the very first trial. And you can see that she's rapidly figured out, even on the first trial, so she's had no opportunity previously to use stones to raise the water level, and we know this because we hand raised all the birds, so we know the experiences they've had. And you can see she puts in quite a few stones before she tries to get the worm. <laughs> there you go. There she's got her tasty morsel. And as she flies off, you'll see that she's left some of the stones before. She only used sufficient to get the worm. And in subsequent experiments, we've done things like 
change the medium in the middle. So if the worm is floating in air, thanks to us using a bit of blue tap for our trickery, or the worm is resting on a solid substrate, they don't put any stones in there. And if you give them the choice of items that sink and items that float, they only put the sinkable ones in there. So they're quite specific about seeming to know what kinds of tools to use and in what kinds of situations. So if I can get this one working. This is a different task. In this one, there's a bucket containing the tasty food reward. But of course, the bucket is also out of beak reach. But we gave the bird a piece of wire. And as you can see, she uses the tube to bend the wire over. But of course, now it's the wrong way up. So she flips it over. So the hook is down the bottom. Gives it a bit of a yank and gets her food. This is one in which the birds have to use one tool to get the right kind of tool in order to get the worm. So here, there's a thin tube in the middle, and that contains the food. The <coughs> outside tubes are both fat tubes, but one has a big stone in it, and one has a small stone in it. And so her problem is that, of course, and then she's given a big stone. Well, the big stone's not going to fit in that small tube. And so what she's going to have to do is use that big stone to get a stone of the right size to fit in the other tube. And as you see, and that was trial one. So that's an example of what I think of as tools on tools, using one tool to get another tool. They're not bad in the social domain either. If you present them with a task where it takes two, they readily do it. Here's our chimp version. Here's our bird version. Now, in our bird version, the strings are through two hooks and eyes. So, if only one bird pulls, all they'll get is a beak full of string. The tray containing the food will stay where it is. But if they pull together, then the tension of pulling on the string will allow the little um, tray of food. And here you see the one they pull together <laughs> and get the food. And we looked at various conditions under which they will and won't cooperate. So if it's a partner and they pair for life, they spontaneously cooperate. If it's an enemy that they've just had a fight with, they're understandably rather reluctant to cooperate. 
But once they've kind of gone over it and do cooperate, then they happily share food with one another afterwards. Some of the work that we've done, however, has focused on one very specialised kind of behaviour that these birds do for a living, and that's called caching. That's the ability to hide food for the future. It's something that they do naturally in the wild. Typical jay will hide somewhere around the region of 10,000 items, which they recover over the autumn and winter. Luckily for me, they do so very readily under the laboratory conditions. Here you see an ice cube tray filled with sand. These are the waxworms, the Belgian truffles of their world, and that's packing by a burial into the sand. So we can ask some questions um, about their cognitive capacities. And I just want to give you two examples and then I'll finish. The first was we asked whether they could plan where to cache food for a future breakfast. So during training, they're given powdered food. This is so that we can be sure in our experiments that they've had no opportunity to learn beforehand about whether or not there's an advantage to caching the food and if there is an advantage to caching it where. And during training, they get to explore this series of three rooms. But in the evening, when they go to bed, they're locked up in one of the end compartments. So for three evenings, they're locked up, let's say, in the left. And when they wake up in the morning, they're hungry and breakfast is served. And for the other three evenings, they're locked up in the other side. And when they wake up in the morning and they're hungry, unlucky, no breakfast is served. And of course, we counterbalance. So for half the animals, breakfast is on the left and for the other half, breakfast is served on the right-hand side. And we, we randomly vary which days they go into which, so they don't know whether they're going to get, they're going to be in the breakfast room tomorrow or the no breakfast room, the hungry room. And then all of a sudden, on the evening of the sixth day, we give them something new. We give them a bowl of cacheable seeds and we give them two of those little caching trays, one in the breakfast room and one in the hungry room. And what we're interested in is their first trial behaviour. What can they do on that first trial? And of course, the idea is that given they don't know whether they'll be in the breakfast room or in the hungry room, then having eaten their fill of food, if they can think about tomorrow's breakfast, then what they should do is put any leftovers they should hide in the hungry room. The breakfast room isn't a problem. Breakfast will be served. They don't know which room they're going into, but if they hide their own provisions in the hungry room, then if they wake up hungry tomorrow, no problem, they've sorted it. And that's indeed what they do. And in fact, if we have breakfast rooms that serve different things, eggs in one room and toast in another, then like us, they like a bit of variety and they hide toast in the egg breakfast room and eggs in the toast breakfast room. We also capitalised on the social skills because you see these birds don't only hide food but others steal their caches and the birds play both roles so you might be you steal others caches and you protect your own and what we found is that if others have been watching when they were hiding their food they come back later when the others have left and they move them to new places which by definition potential thieves don't know about because they haven't seen the food being moved. So this is what I mean by trickery. And what we were able to show is we can look at the number of items that they move based on whether they had been observed at the time of when they hid the food at caching or whether they'd hidden it in private. 
And what they're doing now is always in private, so there's no other birds there. The only difference in these conditions is whether they were watched or not at the time of caching. And you can see that, sure enough, if they'd been watched, they move them to new places. If they hadn't been watched, they do very little moving. But perhaps most striking of all is the fact that not all birds engage in this behaviour. Naive birds who have not themselves been thieves don't do it. It's only the experienced thieves. And the other important thing to say about this behaviour is it's a one-off trial. They're never rewarded or punished for moving the food. So there is no trial and error learning in this particular instance because they're never given any opportunity to find out whether that was a smart thing to do or not. But the argument essentially is that it takes a thief to know a thief. And this is a particular <coughs> kind of social skill called experience projection. The inference is that our caching bird recalls its previous experience of being a thief and predicts the potential thief, our observer's potential pilfering, reasoning by analogy with its own experience. You could think of it as putting yourself in another's shoes. So it's for those reasons, these social skills, this, these planning for tomorrow's breakfast, these tool-using tasks, that I'm arguing that there must have been a convergent of evolution in these two very distantly related groups, the non-human great apes and the crows. Because I'm not saying that all animals have these abilities. Indeed, pigeons, for example, when tested on some of these tasks, will fail. So the idea is that it would have evolved independently, but convergently, probably because they had the same kinds of problems to solve. The fact that they live in complex social groups and they live a long time probably means that, that, that those would be reasons why. So the fact that they have such intellectual capabilities, I hope, means that the derogatory term bird brain is obsolete. Personally, I, sh I think we should be flipping it around and calling them brainy birds. The idea is that they have the same kind of kit as the chimpanzees because they have the same kinds of social and physical challenges to share. And that's sort of what I'm trying to illustrate here. But it raises a number of questions. The first concerns brain size. After all, a bird, a crow, has a brain about the size of a walnut. So, but perhaps one of the great mysteries about this area of research is that it's thought that absolute brain size doesn't matter. After all, the blue whale has the largest brain of any animal. So clearly size isn't everything. But actually, it's thought that relative size is important. And if you look at the size of their thinking part of the brain, the cortical part of the brain, in relation to the rest of the brain, it's on a par with that of the non-human great apes. But there's another reason to question it, and there's another reason why in those comparisons I had those diagrams of brains at the top. And that is because actually the... Birds and the mammals have very different structured brains. Mammalian brains are layered. Many of you may know that the cortex of the 
has six layers. But bare brains do not. They're nuclear in structure. You can think of them as being made of the same stuff, nerve cells, in my analogy, cake mix. But whereas our mammalian brain looks like a six-layered German chocolate cake, <laughs> our bird brain looks more like a fruit cake. <laughs> so perhaps there is a whole untapped source of other alien minds that we share our planet with. But next time you go for a walk in the park or you stop at the memory service station, spare a thought for those feathered apes and don't leave your car window open because they may steal your food when you're not looking. Now you may think I'm completely mad and that I'm the only one out there to make such a claim about the crows. Well, I may be mad, but I'm not unique. Sadly enough, the Reverend Henry Ward Beecher in the 1800s said, if men had wings and bore black feathers, few of them would be clever enough to be crows. <laughs> Thing to cling on to when you're discussing 
the experiment, which I think mean, they're fantastic. They are fantastic animals. How far was something like Aesop in your mind when you're constructing experiments? <coughs> or does it come that somebody comes in and says, you know who did that before? That's Aesop. So I just want how far the stories we read are also informing how we are thinking about the world we're looking at. It's not just that we're being empirical. We're being empirical with imaginations in our heads already that tell us stories about crones and thirds and so on. I'll stop. I've got lots more I can say, but... Yeah, do you want to re respond to that? Yeah. I guess I don't know how typical I am as a scientist because I'm also a dancer and I'm I see the world in terms of movement and I'm continually making links between the two. And so immediately when I saw the barbers, I thought, yeah, well, they're one of the best examples <coughs> of maybe in contemporary dance, the whole way they align their objects to showcase the male's displays. And I suspect that's not the typical scientist response to that. Um, that said, I think the idea with Aesop's fable was that when we were trying to think of problem-solving tasks, and of course, Greg brought it up that one of the sort of cornerstones in contemporary studies of animal cognition is to what extent is associative learning the null hypothesis. In other words, to what extent can we, and there are two levels to this, because actually, in some ways, it, it shouldn't be at all. There are some really well-specified and very complicated accounts of associative learning that explain what appears to be quite compl complex kinds of cognitive process in humans, so I don't think it's necessarily the case that if you could explain it associatively, it isn't cognition. It depends on what your definition of cognition is, but for me, if it's problem-solving, for example, I'm not necessarily worried if there is an associative account, but what I am worried about is thinking what the nature of that process would be. In other words, could I have various models which would make predictions about what they're trying to get at what they do and don't understand, <coughs> rather than simply saying, can they become a task? And it just struck me, in thinking about tasks to develop, to test the animals, that something along the lines of an Aesop's fable would be nice, because in a sense, the beauty is it is so simple. It's just a tube with water and stones. One could stick it on a bird table and look at the, the local birds in one's <coughs> garden and see if any of those do it. It's something that, for any animal that can pick up stones, and, and drop into water, you could test. It doesn't have to be a bird, it could be a dog, it could be an elephant, it could be a chimpanzee. You could put whatever food that that particular animal really likes to do it. So for me, the appeal was the, the, both the simplicity of the task, and therefore I could change lots of different variables to ask questions about what they understand or how they're solving it, and the, and the fact that it was something that I thought would be amenable to being truly comparative that we could lo look at lots of different species. But it caused me to think a bit more about Aesop himself, and I wondered whether it really was a fable, or whether he'd seen elements of this behaviour in the wild, in his observations, that had, tr had triggered his imagination. So I, I went full circle. Mm -hmm. okay. Nice, thank you. Um, but Greg, you were saying that we're sort of oscillating on this um, spectrum between these two poles, moments canon on the one hand, and then perhaps the over-attribution of intelligence to animals on the other hand. So where do you think, sort of looking at the contemporary study of animal behavior, we would be, do you think there is something like Morgan's challenge that we could launch against? There's also the other thing, 
that I was wondering about whether you might have something to say about this shift of focus away from the study of language as the essential mm -hmm. criterion for intelligence to um, other types of behavior, in particular tool use and perhaps social intelligence as well. Well, in responding, let me come back to the discussion you've just been having about the research imagination, um, which I found fascinating. And, and go back uh, to start with to Erica's uh, question about the kind of skepticism that you get in Morgan. I think you're absolutely right. One shouldn't take for granted the direction that Morgan's skepticism goes in in the 1890s. And I think it goes the way it does. That is to say that <coughs> for him, being uh, kind of fastidious intellectually means very being very wary about what you should attribute to animal minds. That's because of the discussion that he'd inherited from Darwin's day. Uh, for Darwin, it went the other way. Darwin, for Darwin, it beggared belief that the bird mind was completely unlike what his mind is like. And when the bird chooses, makes that what's going on in there can't be explained in terms of a sense of beauty. And then what happened between Darwin's day in the 1870s and Morgan is that we had the first serious public discussion about anthropomorphism in science. Uh, in my reading of Darwin, it really wasn't reflective about these questions until he had critics who said, actually, we don't know anything about what's going on in animal minds because they can't report to us what their experience is. And so Morgan's particular variety of skepticism comes out of this very ferocious public debate. <coughs> one thing that impresses me, and in some ways even more so, having seen Nikki's work, is the way that between about 1892 and 1902, you get this, a lot of the options that remain our options are mapped out. So one option, the one I emphasized in my talk, was associative learning and associative learning experiments. But right from the beginning, there are people who are in dissent from all of that. And they're hunting for experimental designs which will show those skeptical pessimists um, that there's something really rich going on inside the animal mind. And one of the, one of the, the real creative forces here was the first uh, professor of sociology at the LSE, Leonard Hobhouse. Before he took up that post here at the LSE, he was, uh, as you may know, a pioneer in the study of animal minds. And so the one experiment that he pioneered, and this will sound familiar to you, was uh, setting a food object the animal wanted at a distance, along with a rake that the animal could use to get the food object, and then giving the animal a rake that the animal could use to get the rake to get the food. Uh, now, the, the, likewise, the famous, much more famous, right, putting a chimp in a room with crates and a banana up at the ceiling. Right, the point of these experiments, as, as sort of in Nikki's, right, is, is that there's just no way the animal would have done this by trial and error learning. There has to be, as they called it, insight, some kind of insight. And what's so impressive to me is both that uh, this kind of dissent came up so early uh, and that it continues. Uh, but also, in some ways, the conversation doesn't seem to be continuous with all of that. I don't know, Nikki, to what sense, in what sense you feel in doing these kinds of experiments that you're in a lineage with people that go right back through to Hobhouse, or you had a, rather a sense of novelty. The last 25 years, you say, a kind of a revolution in, in, in Crow understanding. Uh, do you do you do you yourself do you see yourself as as partnered up with people who are doing this kind of work? No, because I think we're doing it in much more controlled and very careful ways. 
Um, and because the revolution I'm saying is not pitching cognition against associative learning or pitching insight against associative learning. The revolution is in going from studying only primates to studying other species and to thinking about how to do tests that really one could test in a variety of different species. <coughs> so much so, in fact, that I'm using my tests now to look at how good young children and even adult humans are at some of these tasks. Because there is an assumption that we humans are fantastically good with tools. Now, there's no doubt that there are tools in which this is undoubtedly the case. No other animal, you know, develops computers and uses them, or knives and forks or anything else. But if you look at our naive understanding of technology, not the stuff that we're taught, not the stuff we gain through culture or are shown by mum and dad and the rest of the family. That is the understanding I'm interested in, in looking at. And to do so, taking novel tasks that humans are not used to doing and looking at how good they are at doing them and when <coughs> children, for example, can pass some of these tests, I think it's quite informative. But I'm not interested in it so much in saying, can the animal pass it? I'm interested in finding ones that they can pass and then trying to use an interventionist approach to change various variables in order to try to understand what bits of it they can do and what bits of it they can't do. Because that will help me build <coughs> a model of how this might work and therefore of how it might have evolved. So for me, the interest is not just saying, isn't it cool that a crow can do this? but saying, can I take a relatively simple plan, simple one, with just a few things that I can vary. And I, you know, I gave the Essex fable as one where I can change the stuff that's in the tube, I can change the object that goes in it. We have other ones where we, we because the tube is secretly and below fixed to a YouTube, I can manipulate whether the worm is coming closer as the bird puts the the stone or whether the worm is going away. And my idea here is to try to be able to come up with a model of explanatory path about how they're doing it. But in order to be able to look at how they do it, I have to find a task that they're good at. So I think that that's a changing focus from saying, let's look at all the smart things that animals can do. But it's to say, let's take tasks that we can adapt for our crow and our chimpanzee and as I say, I'm now adapting it to children, and I'm also adapting it to elephants. I thought I'd pick a really big, heavy species as well as a mighty one. So that's how that is different. Okay, so I think it's time to open up the discussion, because I'm sure there will be many questions. And yes, um, I want to sort of continue that theme, really, by um, going back to Greg's paper. It struck me that... Um, what seems to go wrong is the assumptions concerning human mind. Mm -hmm. Because uh, in terms of trial, do, doing things by trial and error without understanding the underlying principles, it strikes me that quite a lot of us uh, 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 adopt that approach mm -hmm. most of the time. I mean, you know, whether it's driving a car, or in my case, I don't really understand, I vaguely understand the principles, or using a, a, a computer, I definitely don't. I mean, they're doing some theoretical slightly adult way. But, you know, I mean, that is how humans, I mean, certainly if you look at kids coming across technology, that's how they do it. It's trial and error. Uh, they don't necessarily understand the principles. 
how this kind of thing works. Similarly, um, the assumption that uh, to show human intelligence, the hen bird would have to have some internal model of excellence against which she judged the male, rather than simply responding affectively, so to speak, is ludicrous. But that's how everybody does it, isn't it? <laughs> Who has an internal model of male excellence when you think, oh, he's nice? <laughs> Morgan goes on from there, I didn't give you the rest of the discussion, but he goes on from there actually to distinguish three levels. He says there's a level at which you just prefer A to B. There's a level at which you have some kind of standard in your head, and you're comparing A with the standard and B with the standard. And then there's a third level, which he calls scientific aesthetics, where you're actually able to, com able to compare standards. So Morgan says of himself, I know I like a good cigar and a good claret, uh, but I'm not good enough a, a connoisseur to be able to say exactly what standard I'm applying, but there is a there is another higher, standard. Um, but to go on to, to your other point, um, I, Morgan's canon is one of the major feeders into behaviorism in the 20th century. And when I think about behaviorism, is that what starts out as a very impoverished view of how animal minds work is then extended back to humans. Uh, so it's all become deeply unfashionable now. But but in the middle years of the 20th century. You're exactly right. That was that was it was widely seen to be one of the great achievements of the human sciences, the way that human cognition and animal cognition were brought under the same associative umbrella. And Nikki's point is well taken. They didn't necessarily see this as demeaning. That you know, associative learning for people like Edward Thorndike and others was capable of immense, immense achievement. I suppose I'm sorry, just to interrupt, I mean one of the questions that emerges from this, which is you know, it's it's a question that's a cheeky question, but I think it's a real question. It's what happens to the unconscious in all this? Yeah. That you know, we have a thing called the unconscious. I yeah. assume most people in the room would be willing to agree to that. Do we then say an animal has an unconscious, and how can we get at that when we can't even get at yes. our own, yes, yes. let alone another human? Yes. And so there's all sorts of okay, you know, you call them grey areas, but yeah. grey matter. We are shifting in, in our understanding of human cognition, aren't we? We're shifting in, into a kind of um, being able to talk about uh, the role of affect in cognition, uh, the fact that most of what we uh, do is not conscious, our, our thought processes are mainly unconscious, for example. So I mean, there are big shifts, which I think the, you know, the animal, the interest in animal cognition is very much a part of. Okay, other questions? Yeah. Yeah, but I'm, I'm interested in physics that's been applied to the brain. in a scanner and then you can give them various tasks to do 
and look at the brain activity during these tasks and before and after. And um, yes, people are starting to develop these techniques now for birds. Um, they have in the past with animals done more invasive kind of studies like actually lesioning, damaging the brain in certain areas, um, which has given us some information, but of course it's very difficult um, to know exactly what goes on. It's like if you yank the telephone out of the socket and then you say it doesn't work, or which bit of that fact that the, te that the telephone isn't connected and you've yanked it out has done the damage. Um, so I think that it would be very, very interesting to see, and there are a number of techniques that are starting to um, be developed to be able to, to look at those kinds of questions. I think um, it's been most well developed in the interim in terms of looking at what happens in the brain when birds sing, and there's some very interesting information there about the role of the bird motor cortex in the bird sensory cortex and they, they, they have particular <coughs> song control nuclei, particular regions in the brain that are known to play a very important role, both when the bird is, is singing and remembering the songs that it's learned, and also in the learning process. Great. From the sort of philosophy of science point of view, what role do you think this sort of neuroimaging studies play in, in the study of animal cognition? Well, they, they've been immensely productive. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's, it, well, one, one question in the philosophy of science is, is you know, the relationship between pure and applied science. And uh, to my knowledge, I mean, it should be well known, uh, better known than it is, that the discovery that uh, neurons are created in the brain is a product of a bird's own <coughs> learning studies. I mean, it, so this is, you know, then which one can get no more pure. You know, why, why, why fund people to study bird song learning and why fund them to be able to do very complex neuroscience on song learning? But it turns out that the, you know, the, the, the trashing of the old no new neurons dogma, uh, out of which, you know, maybe it's not unrealistic to think one day there'll be new kinds of therapies for people who have brain illnesses now. So th this, this, will, this will come out of that. So <coughs> as, from that point of view alone, I think they've, they've been immensely productive. Um, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm at too much of a distance to know uh, quite how they throw light on the big kinds of questions that, that Nikki touched on uh, mm -hmm. toward the end about the evolution of cognition. Uh, mm -hmm. Peter Marler, who uh, Nikki and I were talking about before the meeting, uh, Peter Marler is someone who binds together the bird world and the primates world. Uh, in the 1950s, he was the first graduate student in ethology at Cambridge. and. Uh, it, it, he's been very thoughtful for decades about how birds and primates are alike and unlike. And one thing that I recall him saying was that um, birds, bird communication and primate communication are very unlike in that bird communication was at least some of the time about the environment, whereas primate communication is almost exclusively about the social group. Uh, and when Peter then speculated, well, why is it that you know, one primate band uh, gave rise to something like humans and, 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 and birds not. He, he tended to think about the differences between their vocal communication systems. So whether neural imaging of vocal communication systems is throwing on any light on that, I just don't know. It would be fascinating if, if it were. Okay. Other questions? Yeah, in the back. Um, I'd like to ask you about the 
setup where you can still monitor stuff, but it's not so just you have these two things. And because the only outcome can be those, yeah? You can't do anything else. Oh, no, I mean, the bird, can, the bird is in a 30 meter long aviary. I get that, but you've only introduced two things. So the question is... No, but there's loads of other things in the aviary. So in fact, sometimes if we're a bit slow in putting the stones in, before the, we've even had a chance to give the bird the stone, it's flown off and got other objects from the aviary. Oh, okay, so it is actually a huge thing, because from the video it seems Yeah, like no, I mean, in the videos, I, I simply show something close up so that it's easy for you to see what's going on. If I shot an angle of, you know, a 30-metre-long aviary, mm -hmm. and the bird's just in the distance at the other end, okay. yeah. I understand that. And my second point is that you seem to compare chimps to birds, which I think is incredibly interesting. I've never really seen birds in this way, but I think the... the what you, I think, what I think, what you're bringing to this discussion is, is really important. But you, no one has anyone done any tests on the chimpanzees because it sounded like you are saying that birds are more intelligent than the chimpanzees. No, I'm you're saying they're saying on a the par. More intelligent than we previously thought. Correct. The latter, not okay. that they're more intelligent than the chimpanzees, just that they're more intelligent than we gave them credit for. And I'm not saying all birds. And I'm not saying the only comparison should be with chimpanzees. It's just that you know you work with the animals you have access to, and I have access to chimpanzees in Leipzig Zoo, and I have access to my colony of corvids in Cambridge. So I would have said that my money would on, be on elephants being very intelligent, dolphins being very intelligent, and parrots being very intelligent. Just as you know, three next step stages. But you know you can only <coughs> one individual research group can only chip away at one individual bit. We have done similar experiments actually on the um, chimpanzees. Uh, I don't have um, a video of it to hand. The chimpanzees are a bit more uncouth. They solve the problem in another way. Rather than adding stones to raise the water, they pee into the tube. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it's any less intelligent, but I'm definitely saying it's different. <laughs> Which I think 
is, is quite interesting and perhaps feeds back to your idea about which ones are more you know, altruistic and balanced for one another. It's challenging. It's coming out of the Enlightenment and looking back on 
acrostic expression post-humanism has uh, to do with the proposal that we'll be able to download our consciousness. Uh, it's a little different from this, but, but on the question of, of uh, you know, humans not taking kind of arrogant dominion <coughs> over the rest of nature, uh, it's very striking how our world has changed over the decades on questions about animal rights. Um, Ian Hacking says that Peter Singer just seems to have changed minds. It's just rather remarkable, as he says, the way the circle of who counts as, a, uh, as worth uh, considering when we ask moral questions has expanded over the decades. And Singer, from the start, from animal liberation right on through, has been a very active consumer of psychological and ecological research on, on animal minds. And uh, just to say that the old idea, uh, the old ideas were based on Cartesian Enlightenment ideals, which after Darwin no longer hold. You know, see the, so the kind of research that, that we've been talking about this evening has fed in a very you know, in potent way into uh, one of the most important changes in the moral landscape. I think we have time for one last question. So. Yeah, just just a couple of points really about the history of the debate. Um, first of all, going back to a point that Gregory made about Darwin. Um, I think he made a point sort of that he wasn't that critical uh, of the implications uh, of Darwin's morphism. Um, I think he, I, I disagree with that. I'd say you know he was obviously an empirical scientist, but um, a priori from his theory. Um, in animal minds because of the continuity of animal mind. We're rational. We've evolved from animals. Therefore, you know, he could he, he couldn't really go against the fact that um, the animals do have minds. It was the um, it was the scientists after him, shortly after him, who were a bit less careful with the theory and and, and, and it was uh, the canon, Morgan's canon that came mm -hmm. after that. But you know, we, again in the same way his canon was abused by the behaviourists. Yes. Um, it, it, it's really, I, I'm not sure if there are genuine, you know, people here who genuinely believe animals, you know, don't have minds in the way that we're thinking, but that, that sort of pure question in my sense, in my mind anyway, is a bit of a straw man, you know, it's, it's, it's really just relative behaviourism, and going back prior to that, Christianity, and I'm quite amazed that Christianity hasn't been mentioned tonight, um, probably the best book to read about all of this is, um, is by James Rachel's uh, The Moral Implications of Darwinism, Creative Commandments, Moral Implications of Darwinism. And he talks about um, the, the central thesis, one of the central theses of Christianity is, is what he calls the, the rationality thesis. Um, and you, you have to contrast the human with rationality, with the animals that don't have rationality, and the humans being you know, in, the, in the center of the universe and all the rest of it. So, it's, it's, it's the powerful influence of Christianity you know, throughout our history that's actually given us this, this huge distinction between the human animal, not thought of as an animal, being rational, compared to you know, all other animals as we know it, being brute animals and being irrational. And, and so Chris, you know, the only reason really I would say that we in our current day are actually even arguing about this, of course we can argue about the extent of animal minds, but whether they have minds. Um, at all in terms of uh, rationality, you know, it's in the straw man and it's just a relative of Christianity and behavior. Well, well thank you. On, on your first point, I mean, it was, it was Darwin's critics who said to him, look, you're just an a priori theorist. You, 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 
you believe in the continuity of human minds and animal minds because your theory requires you to believe in it. Darwin more or less said, yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm, I, I'm so committed to my, my theory on so many other impeccable grounds that I'm not really up, it's not up for grabs for me, says Darwin, that the animal mind is fundamentally different in every respect to, to, the, to the human mind. Um, I couldn't agree with you more, a fantastic observer, but I also think you know, we, we should resist being anachronistic. I mean, a lot of scientists read The Descent of Man and the Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, and they wince at Darwin's anthropomorphism. And I just think that's, that's unhistorical, in the sense that, at that moment, no one had been reflective in the way that any animal scientist just has to be now. You're, you're, you're forced to think these things through. No one had raised those kinds of questions. It was Darwin's work that provoked it. And Darwin himself wound up being able to justify his anthropomorphism. But my sense was that he never thought about it before, never, never, never imagined that he would be challenged. Uh, on your other, your other point, you know, I agree with a lot of what you say, but think of someone like Noam Chomsky. I mean, he's no Christian. He's no behaviorist even. But he thinks there's a huge difference between what the human mind is capable of and what the animal mind is capable of. And that difference for Chomsky, of course, is to do with language, which actually puts him right on a par with Morgan. When Morgan thought about the immense difference between the highest animal mind and the human mind, for him, it was language. Language, he felt, changed everything. It, it actually altered our consciousness in ways that only the most professional psychologist was able to tease out again. It's very difficult, thought Morgan, to catch those moments in your own mind which aren't somehow language-saturated. Uh, so you don't, you didn't, your point's well taken, but you didn't need to be either Christian or behaviorist to be impressed. Okay, I know there's still a lot of questions, but unfortunately we've run out of time.